Hi, everyone. Welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm Dave Giancola from the USGA, joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Mike Trosel. Mike, how are you today? Dave, doing great. Excited for this one. Me too. In anticipation of the 120th U.S. Open coming up at Wingfoot from September 17th to the 20th, we are so excited to be joined by two-time U.S. Open champion Lee Trevino, who famously won those championships in 1968 and 1971. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. How are you and how have you and your family been over these last few months? Oh, I tell you why we, we we've been wonderful. It uh, you know living here in Dallas, we we uh, we actually caught had the flu about the first of March, and I was going to go out to Palm Springs for a couple of weeks, and we didn't get to go. And then this uh, this little bug that we have hit, and we stayed home. And we've actually we've actually not done much. We've actually been home now since March fourth. And we've, we've, I've stayed indoors. I'll be, because I'm going to be 81 in December, so I, I can't risk it. I'm pretty healthy, but I still can't risk it. But the greatest thing about this is that I have the greatest cook you have ever seen in your life that's living <laughs> with me here. <laughs> and I have no clue, no clue what I'm going to have to do for this lady once this is all over with and I can take her someplace. I think I'll take her on a world trip or something, but I swear to God, if it wasn't for this lady that I'm married to, Claudia, I would have gone absolutely crazy. She's, she's been absolutely wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like uh, you owe a lot to your wife and are eating very, very well. I think uh, a lot of us out there certainly uh, owe a lot to our significant others. Now, Lee, your journey in golf, was a little different, I, I think, to say the least, than uh, compared to many of your peers. Can you tell us what your childhood was like and, and how you got into the game? Well, I didn't get into the game. I actually came off of a farm. Uh, when I was a kid, I was born in Rallet, Texas, which is about 30 miles just east out of Dallas. And I moved to Dallas when I was six, six and a half years old. And uh, and then uh, I, uh, I actually was here in almost at 17 years old and I, I actually got in a little bit of trouble and I ended up in the Marine Corps. <laughs> that was, that was back in the years when, when, when they tried to help you when you got in trouble, you know, they, they had enough of, they had enough riffraff in, in jail, so they didn't need me in there. So I, I ended up in the Marine Corps and I actually caddied a little bit before I went in there, but I never did play, uh, you know, so, um, I actually took the game up in the Marine Corps at the age of 19. I, I remember a bulletin board uh, had a, a thing on there about tryout for the 3rd Marine Division golf team. I was 19 at the time. I had been in the Marine Corps. I was a machine gunner in the Pacific. Yeah, I was a 0331 Delta Company, 9th Marines, 3rd Marine Division. And uh, I took the game up there. The Marine Corps taught me a lot, a lot of discipline. Who, who they, they, they Actually... I was able to identify who I really, where I came from and, and what I wanted and, and where I was going. And I certainly didn't want to go back to where I came from. So uh, it was a big stepping stone. Uh, USJ did a lot for me, too, winning that Open in 68. I mean, I can't tell you what it did for me. Well, before you got to 1968 and that first U.S. Open victory, you took advantage of the fact that the U.S. Open is just that. It's open, and you qualified in 1966. What was that journey like going through qualifying and getting to that first U.S. Open? 
Well, it's so funny that you say that simply because I'm a PGA member and, and, and I'm indebted to the PGA of America. But at that particular time, I tried to get on the PGA Tour and because I had no, no experience in playing tournaments and no amateur record, uh, I, couldn't get a, I couldn't get on the PGA Tour. At that particular time, they would play. They would send out a committee to play golf with you, the PGA, and and if you were good enough, they would invite you to play X amount of tournaments, which you couldn't keep the money, but you could play to see if you were well enough to be invited to play on the PGA. The USGA was different. That's why it's called an open. They have open qualifyings all over the country, and uh, if you get a spot. You can go and play, and that uh, in 1966 was the first year that I'd qualified. I qualified uh, in 1966. Uh, I went to uh, Olympic in San Francisco, and that was the year that Mr. Palmer had a seven-shot lead on the back nine over Mr. Casper, and and uh, and actually uh, Casper caught him and then beat him in the playoff. But, but I finished, I think, 54th or 56th in that tournament, and. Uh, and then I didn't pursue it anymore. Uh, I, I didn't do anything. And then I requalified in 1967, finished fifth. Uh, but, um, you know, I owe my whole life to USGA simply because I won in 68 and it gave me a lifetime exemption. I mean, man, uh, what an annuity that is, huh? That <laughs> sure is. Now, Aliyah, you know, what was it like for you coming from Texas? You know, you've talked about before the courses you played. They didn't have rough, you know. They they didn't have bunkers for the most part. You didn't carry a sandwich. What was it like going to Olympic, going to Baltusrol, going to Oak Hill? Courses with narrow fairways, long rough. How were you able to adjust your game to play those U.S. Open courses at a really really high level? Oh no, U.S. Open golf course is wide open compared to the course I played. <laughs> uh, it, it has bunkers. It has bunkers. And, but that's it. Uh, the only thing the U.S. Open golf course had in the course that I played was that it had bunkers. We didn't have bunkers. We had one bunker to the left of the 18th green uh, on our course. The reason we didn't have bunkers is because our golf course was built at the spillway of White Rock Creek in Dallas, Texas. And every time it rains an inch, it floods the golf course. So you couldn't have bunkers. The greens were elevated so you could bump and run. That's why I played so well in Britain. And you could bump and run. But the fairways... I mean, the fairways, you, you, if, if you played a foursome, you had to play a single file to have a conversation. Uh, I mean, you, you, <laughs> you, 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 man, I mean, uh, we, we, the, the, the trees you see were, were very close. In other words, it was a forest down there. And the trees were very close to the fairway, and then the limbs kind of lean over another 20 feet. So you've lo you're losing 40 foot of fairway. So you had to keep the ball low. <laughs> And you had to keep the ball straight. And that's uh, that's what it is. Now, I know every, your listeners want to know, what golf course is he talking about? Well, it's Tennyson Park East in Dallas, Texas. Yep. It was, it was, it was absolutely tougher than a garlic milkshake. I'm going to tell you something. It was a tough <laughs> golf course. I had a, you're not going to believe this either, but I had a plus six handicap there. Ooh, plus six. Yeah, if I shot That's... over sixty-five, there was there was something wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty damn impressively. And and then you come from you know playing at Tennyson Park, playing that low ball, honing your skills that way. You qualify for the Open, as you said, in '66. 
1967 is really your coming out party. You qualify for the Open again. This time you're at Baltusrol in Springfield, New Jersey. And you didn't win, but you had a very memorable week finishing fifth. Now, why was that event so important to your career? That fifth place finish opened a lot of doors for you, didn't it? Well, I learned a lot. I'd never been east. I'd never been east. I've always been south and a little bit west, El Paso maybe. Uh, but I had never been to the east, so I go up there. And I don't. I don't even think I had a sandwich. I think I had a McGregor eleven iron, if I'm not mistaken. My clubs are like 1962 uh, uh, F4000 McGregors, and I went up there, and I got a caddy that drew me out of the box. His name was Duffy. I don't remember his last name, and he was kind of the, one of the older caddies at Balderstraw. And and he was he he was pretty disturbed about drawing me because no one had ever heard of me, and he's saying what the hell have I got here, and so he started caddying for me. And after two practice rounds, he says, "You couldn't give me Arnold Palmer." He says, "I'm taking this kid right here." He says, "This kid can really play," and and so I go up there. But the funny thing about it was the whole way I'd never flown that far on an airplane, and I go up there. I got this golf bag, no cover for the golf bag. I just checked the bag in and hopefully all the clubs are there, you know, when I get there. And I, I go to the hotel. I'm staying at the Union Motel on Highway 22. And if anybody is listening and know where that's at, that is the most dangerous highway in America. I guarantee you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I go in and I check in and everything. And that evening I go to go to get a, to go to dinner in the dining room, but I can't go in because I don't have a jacket. Well, I don't own a jacket. I mean, I don't have a coat, so I can't eat there. I can't eat in the motel that I'm staying at. Okay. I mean, this is not a five star or a three star. This is a motel and I can't eat in the dining room. So what do I do is I get go out and I say, well, is there any place to eat here? And they said, well, there's a nice restaurant just about five blocks down. It's a Chinese restaurant. So I walked down there, and I walked down there every day, in other words, to eat. That's where I ate. A guy said to me, he said, playing in the open, he said, you're lucky you survived just walking Highway 22 to get food. He said, <laughs> he said that's a pretty dangerous thing. But I played I played all, all, uh, all four rounds. I remember playing with Mr. January on the back. I actually think that I could have maybe have finished even a little bit better because – I wasn't I, I wasn't acquainted with all of, of, of the rules and everything. In other words, I, I play amateur golf and stuff, and we just play early in the morning, and we don't care about anything. Uh, but at that particular year, they had continuous putting. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or not. You, yeah, if, no. if, if, okay, they had continuous putting in that tournament. And I actually think I missed a couple of short putts because I leaned over without taking my, my proper stance to putt these two, and I missed them both. And I was playing, I think, with Dave Hill and, and, and Don January the last round, and they were trying to say, hey, listen, you don't have to do that. And they were very nice about it. And I said, no, I, I, I don't want to break any rules. And, uh, and, but uh, that, that was what happened. But what the USGA did for me there was the greatest thing ever. Simply because when I got home by finishing fifth in the U.S. Open, I started getting invitations to other golf tournaments simply because the PGA Tour 
had that in their rules. If you finished in a certain spot in the U.S. Open, you you got you got some invitations on the PGA Tour. At that time, it was run by the PGA. So I got home and I got the first invitation I got was in many it was in uh, uh, was the Western Open in Chicago. And the tournament before that was in Minneapolis, St. Paul at Hazleton. So I go up there and qualify. And it's a brand new golf course. Now that was the meanest golf course I had ever seen in my life. That was the one that Dave Hill talking about. The only thing that they left off was the animals because they messed up a farm. You remember he said that there. No, anyway, I go out there and I qualify and I shoot, I go to the qualifying and I shoot 78 and I'm packing my car up across from the clubhouse was the parking lot. And Wade Cagle, one of the officials, walks, drives by, and they all call me Pinto Bean. You couldn't do that today. You know, today, everybody, you got to be careful what you say about anybody. But they call me Pinto Bean. Everybody did. They call me Max or Pinto Bean. So I said, so Cagle comes by and he says, hey, he said, where are you going? I said, man, I didn't qualify. I'm in the Western Open. I'm going to drive up there. My wife and I are going to drive up there. He said, what'd you shoot? I said, 78. He said, hell, you're leading. (laughs) (laughs) I said, what? He said, hell, you might be leading. And at that time, you know, it it was rabbits on Monday. And hell, we had like, we had like 70 spots. You know what I'm saying? So I got in and made the cut. Well, well, and so I go up to Chicago and I, I, I made the cut in Chicago and by making the cut, uh, on the PGA tour, you were automatically in the next week. So I made the cut there, went to Canada, made the cut, went to New York, made the cut. Well, to make a long story short, I ended up making 13 cuts in a row. Wow. And I made 13 cuts in a row and I ended up 47th on the money list with all of $33,040. And I made and 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 I finished I finished forty seventh. So I got a so I got a PGA card. I got a, a a thing to play the tour. You see what I'm saying? I got a card. Yep. So I come out in 1968, and what happens? I win the U.S. Open. That gave me a lifetime exemption. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that, and it's a it's a great segue into. You know, you talk about 66, that qualifier, then 67, the fifth-place finish, where Nicholas takes home the U.S. Open trophy. And that's right. kind of a precursor to a rivalry that a lot of golf fans love to this day. I'll still watch the clips of you and Nicholas going at it. And 1968, you prevail at Oak Hill Country Club. You, you shoot under par all four rounds, 69-68, 69-69. And obviously, it's a crowning achievement hoisting that trophy. But what was that like, the trajectory from 66 qualifying to now you're Jack Nicholas's really premier rival in 1968. How did that fuel you and how did that feel, that type of rise? Well, the, the greatest thing that happened to me that year, and I'm, I'm, and I'm very sincere when I tell you this, I had never met Arnold Palmer. And this was 1968, the U.S. Open. And Mr. Palmer wasn't playing well. And I, you don't, you don't, you probably don't know this, but he wasn't playing well. And at that time, the the ABC was just taking over television to be in 1968. There wasn't much television, uh, much golf right. on television. So they wanted Arnold Palmer to play in the last group 
for television. And so they came to us and asked Yancey and I, did we mind if Mr. Palmer played behind us? And Arnold didn't want to do it. And Arnold didn't want to do it. And you know what? I don't know of anybody in the world that would have done this but Arnold Palmer. You understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah. I think Arnold Palmer knew exactly how important this was. He didn't want to do it because he had played poorly, and he did. He he felt like he didn't deserve to be in the last group. And they put Jack Lewis with him, which was a a, a promising amateur at the time. And they played behind us. And what made it so special was not only winning the U.S. Open and shooting what I shot two seventy six or two seventy five. I don't remember what it was. And, and so I, I had shot four rounds in the 60s, which didn't make any difference to me anyway. I didn't even know it. And so, but the, the, the coup de gras for me was when I was sitting in the scores tent and Mr. Palmer came in and congratulated me and I got to meet him for the first time and shake his hand. Wow. That was special. That, that was special. really special. Yeah. I, I, it was so funny about the media back then, guys, you, 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 you don't, you know, back then we had an AP and a UPI guy. That was about it that traveled the tour. And, and, and the press tent was a funeral tent that took two parking spots in the parking lot right behind the 18th green. And I walked up there for five minutes and within 40 minutes of, of hoisting the trophy, doing the press conference. I was at the El Sombrero drinking margaritas. <laughs> I was already at the bar at the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you got to, now you got to spend three days and, 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 and go visit the Today Show and everything else. Now, if you win the open, right? <laughs> no question. Things have certainly changed in the last 50 years. You know, Lee, as you mentioned, Mr. Palmer, finished 59th that year, so not in contention at all, but a life-changing win for you in 1968. Uh, you know, to me, you know, a lot of a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, they know Tiger Woods wearing black and red on Sundays, but Lee Trevino was doing that 50 years ago. Why did you like to wear the black and red combo on, uh, on the yeah, fourth I round? Yeah, I called it, yeah, at the time that I started that, I started black and red, and everybody says, you wear black and red every Sunday. I said, yeah, those are money colors. I said, what? I said, these are payday colors, baby. This is payday. And this is what I called them. And then Curtis Strange did it after I did it. Curtis Strange used to wear red and black all the time. And now Tiger uh, 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 wears them uh, now. As a matter of fact, I I think Nike only makes a red shirt for Tiger. I I don't think they make a red shirt uh, for, you know, for anyone else to, to sell. Yeah, yeah, there have been some others that have tried, but only uh, very few have pulled it off, and, and you are certainly one of them. And it leads me yeah. to 1971, another uh, Sunday payday for Lee Trevino at Marion uh, outside yeah. Philadelphia. But, you know, it's a second U.S. Open victory, which puts you in rarefied air, and again, going at it with Jack Nicklaus. And I think one thing that, that sticks out in a lot of people's minds – and not just 1971, but how you handled competition with a balance of obviously tenacity and skill, but also a sense of humor that could even uh, prevail on the first tee of a playoff with the rubber snake. How are you? I got able- it hanging here. <laughs> it's still hanging here in my shop. It's still hanging there. 
in my shop. I got it right here in the shop. Yeah, it's still hanging on the wall there. It scares the hell out of people that come in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, it worked that day. How are you able to balance that with what must have been tremendous nerves taking on, you know, the greatest player of all time in Jack Nicholas in a playoff, in a major, and you still find the wherewithal to have some fun? How how do you balance that? You know, it took it, it took Jack about 40 years to tell the truth about that uh, because we, 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 we were doing a, we were doing an interview with Jim Nance uh, in, in at Augusta and I told him I said Jack tell him the story about the snake and he says oh he said Lee was putting on a glove which I was I reached in the bag to get a new glove and this rubber snake fell out that rubber snake was purchased at the Fort Worth Zoo earlier that year my daughter and I went there, and we had bought this rubber snake. She wanted this rubber snake. Well, we put it in the golf bag, and I used to scare Herman with it, you know, my caddy. I said, hey, give me a glove out of the bag, and he'd unzip it, <laughs> and that rubber snake was in there, see. But anyway, so I pulled this glove out, and the rubber snake fell out. And everyone in the world, if you look at, the, if you look at that film, you will see where the cameras on Nicholas, and Nicholas says, you can read his lips, and he says, throw that over here. Let me see that. So I threw it over to him. He looks at it, picks it up, and throws it back. And and for all these years, people say, you know, I did it. I I, I did it purposely. No, I didn't. I wasn't going to throw the snake over to Jack until he told me to. And uh, but Jack finally, Jack finally told Nance that. And Nance says, all these years, people are saying that you threw that snake on him. I said, no, that snake fell out of the bag, and he called. He he wanted to see it, and he told me to throw it over to him, and I did. That's what I did. You're right. The footage yeah. exists. We can see Jack sitting down next to the next to the tee, and and he does. He kind yeah. of motions over and says, "Throw me the snake." Yeah. Unbelievable. Exactly. Exactly. And everybody thinks. <laughs> I said, "Well, you know, that's the same thing as Augusta. Everybody thinks I hate the place, and I don't. I, I absolutely love it. Nobody watches more golf uh, on television when the Masters comes on. My problem in Augusta was when was, was Mr. Roberts." He and I didn't see eye to eye on the tickets and, and a few other things. So I decided, I said, listen, evidently I'm not welcome here, so I don't, I don't, I, I'm not coming back. And then Jack talked me after. After not being there for three years, Jack talked me back to going there. But I, I don't have any problem with Augusta. Yeah, I play in a cow pasture. It don't make any difference. If it's got a cup, I'll play. <laughs> well, we know you love the game a lot. You, you still play. A fair bit to this day but you know Lee back in 1971 you probably gave Herman a pretty good scare there your caddy Herman Mitchell when he pulled that snake out but the actual golf portion you know when you ended up in a playoff with Jack you said later on you know I know you've got your headlines written to the media but I've got nothing to lose I've tied the greatest player ever that was Jack Nicholas. what was it like going head-to-head -head against Jack in that playoff you know a guy who was probably hitting it by you by what 30 or 40 yards off the tee but you were able to still get by him and just beat him into submission with fairway after fairway, green after green, shooting a 68 there at Marion. You know, the, the funny thing about that, it started the night before. Actually, we were sitting in the locker room on a bench, and they interviewed us about the playoff. And they asked us questions. And I remember seeing one thing, I, I don't, and it's, somebody's got the tape of it. And when they wanted to know how we were going to fare, they asked Jack that. He said, how do you think you'll fare tomorrow? And Jack says, well, you know, I don't know. I'm playing a pretty tough guy here. And they said, you know, you say all the right things. You say all the right things. And then that's what you're supposed to do. 
And and then they asked me. And actually, when they asked me, I actually put it back on the media. I said, well, you guys have already got your headlines written. I said, you know that. I said, you got your headlines written to where Nicholas defeats Trevino in the open. I said, but you might have to change your headlines tomorrow. That's all I said. <laughs> I, didn't, wow. I didn't say anymore. But let me tell you something about the playoff. I don't, even though, even though uh, I, I bogeyed the first hole, okay, and I went, what did I go? I went one down, I think it was. Yep. He left it in the bunker on the second hole. And he left it in the bunker on the third hole. And that relaxed me. I actually said to myself, oh, I said, maybe, maybe, maybe he is feeling the pressure a little bit. Because I certainly was. And so I figured he's, I said, man, he's, he's feeling the pressure as much as I am. So hell, let, let's play. But the golf course was fast and it was hard. And the, 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 not only the reason that, that Jack has won 18 major championships, Jack had the game, in other words, for major championships, because you absolutely uh, get a, a major championship golf course ready for, for the best players. Uh, so you make it tough. You make it narrow. You make it firm. You make it fast. And Jack could hit the ball not only farther than everybody else, but he could hit it higher. And the big advantage when you play an open championship is if you can hit the ball high, doesn't make any difference how hard, how firm those greens are, you've got a chance to stop the ball. I was a low ball hitter because I learned to play and I played Tennyson Park. You had to keep it under the limbs all the time. So I, I, I didn't, I don't think I would have ever won. And if you look back at it, we had an hour and 10 minute delay in that, in that tournament after the fourth hole because a rainstorm came through <clears throat> and it rained about three quarters to an inch of rain and just real quickly. And it softened the greens. And the next hole, when we come out, I think I hit a four or five iron on the fourth or fifth hole, and I knocked it still. Low shot, held the green. When I was able to, when I realized that, that the greens were going to be soft and they were going to be receptive to my type of shot, it, it, it really pumped me up a lot. It really pumped me up, you know. And I won by three shots. That's a lot of shots to beat Jack Nicklaus. And a playoff, nonetheless, with everything on the line. You, you defeat right. You defeat him yeah. by three strokes, and, and it's your second U.S. Open victory. And, and yeah. again, in, in such a short amount of time, you go from your first qualifier in 1966 to a two-time champion in 1971. And, you know, we talk a lot about the game and, and making it accessible and open for everybody. And, and people need to look at someone that's done it right. And come from maybe the humble background and overcome a lot, served in the military, took up the game late. And then you, you persevere and you become a two time U S open champion. What do you say to youngsters around the country, around the globe that look at your story and say, I can do that too. Well, anyone can do it to tell you the truth. I mean, uh, one of the best swingers out there, and, and I think he's going to have a pretty good chance at the Open this year, is English. I mean, th this boy's got the greatest golf swing I've ever seen. But it, it's all about moving dirt. Mr. Hogan didn't have a secret. I knew Mr. Hogan. Uh, I played golf with him. Uh, but Mr. Hogan's secret was moving dirt. 
Yeah. He moved dirt. Back in the old days, we didn't have all these monitors and, 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 and track man and everything. We could tell you, you know, are you two degrees uh, coming into the ball or you're two degrees open? And, you know, we had to do it with feel. If that shaft wasn't reacting the way you thought it's supposed to react, you would change it and, and, and that would be it. I mean, a lot of players used to have three or four different clubs and uh, various and numerous uh, shafts. Uh, none of them matched, but 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 they work. But today it's it's more mechanical than before. I still think that to win major championships, you have to be a mechanic, though. You've got to be. A, that's why Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is one of the best shot makers I have ever seen. Uh, uh, he has speed, but not only does he have speed where he could hit the ball hard and high, and and but. He, he, he can manipulate the ball. He can hit any little golf shot you want. I mean, he doesn't need a wedge from 100 yards. Tiger Woods can take an open a six iron and, and kill you with it. Uh, yep. it's, it's just amazing. The problem today in my what I see now, I did it to my son, believe it or not. My son came home one day, and I says to him, I said, uh, how many shots did you hit today? He said, you know, he said, I'm going to hit 500 balls a day. He said, I hit a big bucket. I said, no, I didn't ask you how many balls you hit. I ask you how many shots you hit. And what they do is they get on the driving range and they'll take a wedge out and they'll hit 10 balls with a wedge all the same. They don't try to hit a low draw, a little cut fade, a high ball, a low ball, a punch shot. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, all these things, all these things uh, go into it. But, you know, when, when you get a guy that, that, that's a mechanic, it works the ball around, most of the times... You see the little guys do that. That's how the little guy survives. The little guy that doesn't hit it 325, that's a 290 hitter, which are very few. Those are the guys that that, that can manipulate the ball. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, Justin Leonard was a mechanic. Uh, you know, Zach Johnson is a mechanic. Uh, uh, you you got to be able to maneuver the ball around uh, and... and but but the game now is is a power game. Everything 320, 340, 350, and then figure it out from there. Uh, they're not going to be able to do that this. They're not going to be able to do that this year. <laughs> not on that golf course. <laughs> that golf course will eat your lunch and then give you the check. Yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, Lee, let's let. Let's talk about Wingfoot. You played in two U.S. Opens oh. at Wingfoot, 1974. Oh, yeah known as the Massacre of Wingfoot, obviously very challenging when Hale Irwin won uh, that year and no one was under par. And then 1984, where you had a, a, you were tied for ninth, the top 10 finish uh, when you were 44 years old. You know, what do you think of that course? What are your U.S. Open memories uh, from playing in a couple Opens there? And what do you expect to see this year uh, from Wingfoot uh, in 2020? You're going to see a lot of hybrids hit off the tees there. Uh, this, this golf course is not straight away. This golf course bends a lot. Uh, trees are lower to the ground. If you'll notice the limbs, it's very difficult to go under them. Uh, the limbs are down low. Uh, the greens are up. Uh, they're elevated up in the air a little bit, which, uh, uh, it makes it difficult for, I, I, I see that they're not going to have any, any audience this year. And, uh, so they don't have to worry about that, but it is a demanding, demanding golf course. It's held its own all these years. 
Uh, I remember when uh, I was there when Hill Irwin won at seven over par, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, it. Uh, I, I mean, it's just uh, the rough is, is up. You've got to maneuver the ball. It it it, it almost it, it almost reminds me of a shorter Oakmont. Uh, <laughs> Oakmont's like that. It snakes the fairways, and if you hit the ball and don't work it from left to right or right to left, uh, in other words, it could run through. And when it runs through, you're going to have some uh, uh, very difficult lives. Uh, Wingfoot's got probably a little bit of pole, uh, fescue in those roughs. And, uh, man, I, I don't care how strong they are. It's going to be very difficult to uh, get that ball out of there and hold those greens. Yeah. The USGA is all about, in my opinion, uh, with any golf course, any tournament is all about controlling the water. If you can control the water on a golf course, you can make it difficult. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I, I love I, I love the, the the TPC in Boston. A little bit too wide open for those players. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I know Dustin shot 30 under and uh, English shot 19 under and, and all that stuff. But but it, it was a little open. It was a little bit open. Yeah, it didn't didn't scare them. You know, it didn't scare them. That's why they drive the ball well at Augusta too. Is it? It's a little open. When you get a player that's a wild hitter and, and he sees all that space, he gets straight. And then when you see a short hitter and you see it wide open, he gets crooked. And people say, how does that happen? I said, well, the guy that hits it long and crooked, now he doesn't fear hitting it crooked, so he'll hit it straight. But the little guy that hits it short will hit it crooked because he, now he's trying to hit it harder. <laughs> and, and you see you see a lot of guys that when they play a short hitter on a long golf course you see where their left ankle is taped simply because they keep duck hooking and hitting their ankle you know those baseball players wear that <laughs> wear that shin guards yeah that's what you got to do yeah it changes well, I, I suspect we won't see any 30-unders at Wingfoot coming up uh, in, in a couple of weeks Woo! like we did at TPC Boston. I, 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 will, I, will, I, would, I would take five under par right now. I, I don't see how they can handle If they can control the, the, the water, if they can – I don't know. They probably can this time of the year too. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, it's probably going to be pretty dry there. Yeah, you you know that you say you know when you're setting up a golf course you like to control the water, but Lee Trevino likes a little rain delay during a playoff in 1971, right? Well, if if, <laughs> if there's no bunkers in the front, if there's no bunkers in the front of the green, yeah, nah, you can make it hard as a brick because I landed 50 yards short. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll run it up. I'll run it up. Don't worry about it. Well, Lee, I think, you know, part of the reason that, that people loved watching you so much was that artistry that you had. You're such a great field player. But then the other part of it, too, was how great you were with the fans. You love to have fun out in the golf course, signing autographs, having conversations. Uh, even look at the 1971 U.S. Open on the 72nd tee box. Your caddy forgets to give you the driver. You turn to the crowd and say, this guy's choking already. He's not even playing. So it, <laughs> it's really been a... A joy to watch Mike, you play my over boy the years. Mike, yeah. I was going to ask, what, uh, what, what made you want to bring in the fans, bring in the crowd so much, and have a good time out there? Why was that so important to you on the golf course? All, all my life, I've been serving the public. Uh, I worked in the pro shop. I worked at driving ranges. Uh, we, 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 we PGA pros are, are schooled to serve, uh, to be nice, uh, to please, uh, to help. 
that's what we do. That's what we do. And, and the public is uh, uh, looking for it a little bit. Uh, so that, that's what we, I, I tell people, I said, when you, when you know you're really good in the pro shop, it's when you can sell a guy uh, a pair of 10D shoes that wears a 12A. Uh, I said, and now you, you know you really got some baloney. You know, you really got some bull on you. But this, this, is, this is what we did. I've always been close to people. Uh, I love people. Uh, I love talking to them. I learn a lot from them. Uh, and, uh, and, and they're, they're, they're our customers. They're the people that keep this game alive. We don't keep it alive. We play, they pay us to perform. And, 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 you know, I mean, they're going to play for $10 million up there, uh, or more. Uh, so yeah, you owe something to the public, a wink, a high. Arnie was the best at it. Mr. Palmer was the best at it. He's the only man I've ever seen that would stop at a red light, get out of the car to sign an autograph. I mean, it's the guy that the, it's the damnedest thing I've ever seen about this guy. But uh, he 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 was really good with them, really good. Jack is too, and Mickelson is fantastic. He learned from Mr. Palmer. Uh, but um, there's some that you know don't don't approach anybody, don't want to be around it, don't want to sign autographs. You know, yeah. Well, Lee, you've always been a fan favorite, and you've got two huge fans here in Mike and myself, and we can't thank you enough for, for taking time out of your day. Your storytelling is top-notch. I could talk to you for five hours, but uh, we just can't thank you enough for taking the time, and we hope that uh, you and your family stay well and stay hitting them straight out there. All right, you too. Wear that mask. This thing will kill you. Wear that mask. It'll do. Well, thank you to Lee Trevino again, and thanks everyone out there for joining us. Don't forget, you can relive Lee's U.S. Open victories as well as so many more incredible moments from U.S. Open's past on the USGA's YouTube channel as well as the USGA streaming app on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire. And obviously, you can't forget to tune into the 120th U.S. Open from Wingfoot Golf Club September 17th to 20th. You can catch all the action on NBC Golf Channel, Peacock, and of course, usopen.com. So for my co-host Mike Trosel and the legend Lee Trevino, I'm Dave Giancola. We'll talk to you next time.